0: Welcome to Lineage. I'm your host, Shani Jamila. This show features intimate, in-depth interviews about the idea of home with some of New York's most imaginative thinkers. I talk with my neighbors and fellow artists about how the city impacts their work and how their work impacts the world. Today, on this final episode of the inaugural season of Lineage, I'm speaking with the iconic Jawaleh willow Joe Jawaleh is the founding artistic director and chief visioning partner of the Urban Bushwomen, a performance ensemble dedicated to exploring the use of cultural expression as a catalyst for social change. Designated a Master of Choreography by the John F. Kennedy Performing Arts Center, she received the Bessie's Lifetime Achievement Award, which we'll talk about on this show and honorary degrees from both Tufts University and Rutgers University. Jawaleh and I have been in each other's lives since I was a child. We open up by talking about the story of her name, which I've heard pronounced in many ways over the years. And now, on to the show. I've heard so many pronunciations of your name.
1: Sure. Yeah, there you know, it's it's creative. So Jowele, uh-huh, Willa Joe Zoller, like Dollar.
0: Tell me the story of your name.
1: Willa Joe is the name. Willa Joe is the name that my parents gave me. Uh, mm-hmm. my I have two older sisters, Donna Ray, Betty Ann, and Willa Joe, and I was named after my grandmother. And My grandmother passed away when I was ten years old. I had no idea, uh, because I didn't have any pictures of her. That how much I looked like her. I got a picture recently, and it just it was shocking, because I was like, "Oh my goodness, I look like my grandmother," uh, who I'm named after, Willa, um, Willa Jo, and then our last name. We're just starting to maybe uncover Zoller. We've been trying to. We knew it was German. Uh, We knew it was probably German. Plantation owners or farmers uh, were discovering that it was probably German farmers because uh, uh, they were in the um, South Carolina, in not, not by the uh, um, uh, water, but inland, and they tended to be smaller, planta- uh, smaller farmers. And so we found what we think is um, the ancestor of Zoller, the white German Zoller, um, slave owner, uh, Jacob M. Zahler, we think. And, uh, but it was spelled Z-A-H-L-E-R. And so, you know, there's just different names, but we found, um, my, my great grandfather, uh, as born. And then, um, the woman who they didn't name, which would have been my great, great grandmother, I believe. And, um, She was there, I guess, one year and then gone, um, sold or we don't know. Uh, That was the only two uh, people who were enslaved that he had. So we suspect that she was probably uh, impregnated by him, by force, I'm sure. And then, you know, the story I've made up is that when the slave owner's wife saw the child, she put two and two together, um, and then they were gone. So we, and so we don't, and we kind of don't know what happened. But we found the Zollers, and somehow the name spelling changed. So that's Zoller Jawole is the name I gave myself. It's a Nigerian name. It means she enters the house. Depending on, I've gotten so many stories about what my name means, mm. but the ones that I've gotten most consistently <laughs> um, is that it is a sentence. And it's because Yoruba language is pitch modulation. It can either mean she enters the house, she fell through the house, or she burst into the house. <laughs> Those are very different meanings. And I think all of them are true.
0: <laughs> I love that. Um, so how far back can you go? Who's your oldest known ancestor? I think
1: 1844. Mm-hmm. Um is as far as we were able to go back at this point.
0: And how did you all talk about your, your lineage and your family? Is that Was it a regular conversation?
1: No. I think growing up, you know, my grandfather was probably born around 1880. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the trauma of post-enslavement and sharecropping and lynchings and the terror in, you know, Black Towns. You know, so a lot of times people just didn't talk about their experiences. So it's a lot we don't know, but we later found out that uh he was he had lived in his his grant, his father had lived in Boley, Oklahoma. And um Boley had a lot of Seminole Creek uh black um people. It was a it was a a, a town that was doing very well my understanding and like a lot of towns in Oklahoma when those when the riots which I don't remember exactly where they when they happened but you know people yeah they were terrorized and so you know it's a complicated complicated history on my mother's side from Texas Louisiana um and my father's side um big sandy texas which is right at the border of Texas Louisiana on my on my father's side, on my mother's side, Temple, Texas, Houston, Texas, um, Austin, Texas, Mm -hmm. um, uh, was it Monroe, Louisiana? So, yeah. So tell me about your childhood. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Kansas City, Missouri. Mm -hmm. At that time, I grew up in segregation. In the 50s, as a young child, as all... And and it was all black. I mean, you know, the community's all black. Um, and so you you grow up into a density of black culture that um I didn't really understand the power of that until the black power movement, the black arts movement, uh I began to really understand that this the richness of this, which is the, why that where the name Urban Bush. Women came from, uh, the, the richness of it, the, the, the density. The name, actually, Urban bushwoman," came from uh, an album by a company called uh, a jazz ensemble called the Art Ensemble of Chicago. They had an album, Urban Bushmen. I thought, oh, urban bushwomen. And, and what drew me to that name was that this idea of what people call the inner city as the bush, it's thick. It's creative, it's tangled, it's dense, it's powerful, uh, it's awesome, uh, awe-inspiring it, and there's danger. So all of those things, for me, you know, really resonated with the idea of what people call the inner city or the inner core of a city, um, particularly in the 50s that were usually all black um, the power in that.
0: It's interesting as you talk about this idea of naming yourself, naming your company. I'm also thinking that your generation saw a lot of changes in the way that we named ourselves as a people as Mm -hmm. well.
1: Yeah, I, I love, so my generation went to the African names and we, you know, usually out of a book or maybe we went somewhere and somebody gave us a name and then there's an th- another generation that just started making stuff up, <laughs> and I think that that's, you know, like Boquisha, Shanika, m- you know, Monish, you know, like these names that have a root of something, but but they're completely creative, African American, um, uh, imaginative. Uh, creations. Mm-hmm. And I, I I, love that. You know, we're naming ourselves. Okay, we're figuring out something that it's it's completely unique. Um, and I, I I, think that that's pretty cool.
0: I'm also thinking, like, between maybe you and your parents, um, your lifetimes combined, going from Negro to colored to black to African American, mm-hmm. you know, like that whole arc.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it was... Probably colored. To, we we called each other colored, mm-hmm. but we didn't like white folks calling us colored. You know, we like when white folks call us Negro. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh. And then yeah, then black, Afro American, African American, African. All of these different ways that we are sitting inside the naming of our identity. Which is complex, I think now I'm back to black, yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. why? because I think it encompasses a large array of people mm-hmm. uh, who black is a political construct um, that i it just feels rich to me that black is Caribbean, it's african, it's Indian, um it's many. Many different things, and so the, 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 that it isn't specifically tied to a location. I'm actually becoming more and more interested in that.
0: Yeah, I like the pan African uh, pan Africanness of it too. Um, I think for me, it exists simultaneously. You know, black is sort of an ethnicity, African American as a nationality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, an American as a citizenship. Yes. 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 Anyway, it's interesting to think about how how all those things kind of
1: shift, and I I think I think we see it in the what you know what is the term women or men or man, mm-hmm. you know what is that women X women plus women women with a Y women you know like all of the ways that that's being challenged and looked at in the same way and Latinx and mm-hmm. all the different. And the root of this is we're trying to define ourselves against a white supremacist oppressive system. So we're trying to define ourselves in the context of it and distinguish something about our experience in ourselves and and, and create community uh, inside of that. Maybe liberation is when you are, when I'm jawale from North America. Hmm. You know, that maybe there will be a time when that, could happen, but right now, we're not there.
0: I'm actually interested in in thinking about how that same sort of idea of of defining ourselves and naming ourselves applies to the lexicon that you're working through um in your in your dance company. Um, does that make sense? Mm, I'm thinking about like the lexicon of movement that you're using, mm. you know.
1: You know what what's archived in the body is a pretty profound thing. And um the ways that uh in one work, women's resistance, and I kind of broke it down one time in the ways that you know when a black woman cocks her head and puts her hands on her hips and <laughs> you know <laughs> you know that there's <laughs> something about resistance in that moment. And I think that's from the very beginning what urban bushwoman has been interested in going into and not being afraid of what other people call a stereotype. So I remember one time I was doing an interview and the woman uh, there was a woman who asked me uh, to talk about the stereotypes that I use in my work. I was like, "Well, what do you mean by that?" And then I realized when she saw a larger black woman, that was a stereotype for her of something as opposed to this is a larger black woman oh. who has who's full and rich. So the ways that we might, the ways that we had different kinds of body types on stage then became somehow stereotypes. And that's if you look at it, and I was like, oh, because she's looking at us from a very one dimensional point of view. So if you look at the woman who's um, nurturing, then that's Mammy. That that that's then that's she doesn't see any the whole range. She only sees that one point of view. So then I think there's people who, then then tried would not do anything close to a stereotype or what was a stereotype in white people's mind. So one of the pieces that I did: Anarchy, Wild Women, and Dinah in 1986, there's a section where we're on stage eating fried chicken and watermelon. I thought, my family loved fried chicken and watermelon. Why should I be afraid of this? Because someone else has made this to be a negative. Can I just enjoy watermelon? Can I, you know, can can I, can I, can I be in the enjoyment of this without, to me, liberation is that I'm, I'm going to just enjoy this. If I'm having to erase it, then I'm still being defined by you. Hmm. So so we just went right into it. I mean, some people walked out because it was too much. And um, it's like, yeah, this is, we're having a good time up here.
0: Wow. I wish I could have seen it. Do you still perform that piece?
1: No, but we're talking about, you know, Sam and Shanon we're talking about, hmm. <laughs> it could come back.
0: Yeah, I mean it's been let's see, you formed Urban Bush Women in 1984. Yeah,
1: so it was eighty-six. Okay. And and the and it was anarchy wild women and Dinah was in response to the invisible invisibility of women heroines folk heroes so at that time there was a very popular folk hero high john the conqueror mm-hmm. so lots of high john the conqueror stories and in the folklore and one day were rehearsal we were talking about dinah it was like oh you know i used to play this dinah game oh i used to play this dinah game and then we, we had all these dinah stories and I thought, oh, well, maybe Dinah was the running buddy of High John the Conqueror. But because she was a woman, she didn't get in the history books. So then we created a whole mythology that we were going to see Aunt Dinah. Mm-hmm. And that would be, we were going to find liberation by finding Aunt Dinah. And it was the idea of wild women, anarchy, wild women, and Dinah, that we were going to define ourselves in this experience and not be defined by what society thought we should or shouldn't be.
0: So this idea of creating your own mythologies, I think also resonates well with what we were just talking about, about creating your own name. All of these things are really about a kind of, of self-definition and an assertion of, of who we are Mm. in the world. Do you remember um, the, the stories that characterize your childhood—are there any that jump to mind?
1: I think that uh, one of the things that just really always sat sits with me still is that how they would talk about when on really hot days they would go out in the park and sleep, hmm. and uh, or they would open uh, sleep out on the screen uh, uh, on the front porch, and I kept thinking about oh with our our safety, our world actually gets smaller and smaller and smaller in regard to safety. Uh, I can't imagine, you know, that world where I could go out and just sleep out in the park. I'm not homeless. It's just hot. (laughs) And um, I remember we would go out sometimes and have, we would go out to the um, different fishing creeks and we would spend the night. And, and then, you know, they catch fish and they would fry it. And, um, you know, my mother would pick wild greens and, you know, we would, yeah, we lived off the land and it was just, it was, they were people who lived off the land. And I think a lot of generation, they hunted, they fished, they knew how to pick, um, herbs and wild greens. and I, and I, and I didn't learn that. I was, you know, embarrassed, like a lot of people of, you know, you're embarrassed, it's like you want to be modern. You know, like, oh, don't don't be picking that mama, you know, don't be getting out the car and going and picking stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't learn that information. Uh, and I think it's really important to figure out how how we how we pass on things, particularly knowing that certain information is going to be seen as embarrassing or you're old fashioned or you're not you know you're not um you know you're not hip you know you know children will have that, so how do we how do we pass on information when all of that particularly now, but there's so much visual you know, uh, computer, uh, Instagram. There's so much information coming at us at all time about what we should be and how we should live. Yeah.
0: I mean, right now we have such a hyper-reliance on on tech. You know, I often remark on the moments where you'll be in a group of people and look around and find everybody's looking Mm -hmm. down into their devices as opposed to talking to each other uh, or engaging with each other. And that's just, you know, yeah. so many steps away from the idea of being able to live off the land.
1: Yeah. I went um, in my first trip to uh, Africa, which was Nigeria, and we were in this, uh, not it's not a, it was a small village. you you this? This was 93. Mm-hmm. And there was no TV, internet. I mean, people literally sat around saying, told stories, talked and i thought oh this isn't mythology this is really real because what else do you do and that's when i realized growing up we did we would we'd sit around and tell stories and talk we played games uh you know the guy singing on the street corner that probably all seems like urban mythology in some ways but that is what people do when you when you when you when the the culture says you must connect because this is how we relate to one another, so I I still like that hanging. You know, it's front porch culture, mm-hmm. so people just stop by. You know, you know, you, you we can't imagine somebody you know, just stopping by your house today, but you know you're sitting out on the front porch or your door screen door is open and people just stopped by. And, you know, there's food, there's things, you know, whatever. It's, that was very much part of the culture. Um, And I don't know when I've lived inside of a space. I can't think of the last time I've lived inside of that front porch culture where people just, New Orleans a little bit. Yeah, Yeah. New Orleans. Yeah, I guess New Orleans would be the closest. Uh, And people just kind of hang out and stop by and, you know, talk to you, how you doing, you know. Come. So we we truly don't understand what we're losing. And I'm not talking about in a nostalgic way. I'm talking about in the ways that we create survival and resilience. Hmm. Say more the 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 connection with one another, the communities that we need the the um the tavern, my father had a tavern um so people would just come as commun- neighborhood bar people come and hang out and they talk and they um they connect and you know we we have some semblances of that what I've noticed in Fort green. And the changes here is that it's definitely more of a tech culture. Younger people, younger Google, Amazon techies, not just white, but predominantly white, and they don't speak, they don't connect, they don't see you. Um, if you're in, a, you know, you're at a bar, <laughs> you know, if I'm having, if I'm going, I can make conversation with a bartender, but not much. And, and some of it is my age, so like I'm out of the age range where like. Was this old woman that is trying to make conversation? So that's what I've noticed in the neighborhood. It's just it's really interesting. And then I ha- then I'm, you know, places like Frank's. You know, um, there's the old school places. It's, it's very interesting to watch the change.
0: Yeah, Frank's has held on. Mm-hmm. What um what year did you move to Fort Greene?
1: I moved here in, two th- the company offices moved here in 2000.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I moved in 2012.
0: And what year did you move to New York?
1: 1980. So it be 40 years.
0: Paint a picture for me of who you were in 1980 when you first moved to New York. Was that straight out of Kansas City? Did no. you come here? Straight out of Tallahassee.
1: I was country as hell. <laughs> Country <laughs> as hell, um, and uh, there's a part of that. I, you know, I think I, you know I am country. You know, I, I, there's a part of me that's just true. Um, I was excited by the city. I was excited by all of the things that I could see and experience, and that sometimes just walking for hours, you know, through the streets and stopping and looking and seeing. And museums. I was curious, just infinitely curious and sometimes really terrified. I remember the first time I was in the East Village and I turned down the street that the um, uh, uh, Hells Angels Motorcycle Club, and I just went into complete terror and all of the stereotypes of what I thought that was. Um, You know, they're gonna gonna kill me. And, you know, New York was not in my, the reality of it. Harlem felt like Kansas City. That part was absolutely comfortable and familiar. Harlem was very, very, um, that felt like home. Mm -hmm. I knew that. You know, it it was like the inner city of Kansas City. Uh, So Harlem was comfortable. And that's where I spent a lot of time with Diane McIntyre, Sounds in Motion and walking up and down there. I, I knew how to read I knew those people. I knew how to read the signals. I didn't know how to read punk. I didn't know how to... I didn't grow up around white people. So I didn't have any encounters with white people till college. And, you know, I was trying to figure it out. I was like, I I don't... I don't get it. I don't... I don't understand the indirect communication. You know, what we sometimes call passive-aggressive or all the language that's wrapped in a particular thing. And and I would be f- sitting there trying to figure out what are they saying to me? And I remember one time we had gone out in Tallahassee. It was a group of us. Some were gay. There was a black and white couple, and we'd gone out. And uh, this group of white men said, you know, that there was another place we should we would be comfortable at that we should probably leave. And I was like, oh, that's nice of them. I was so (laughs) nice. That's nice of them. And they're like, uh, no, this is not helpful. This is a threat. Um, because I, I know when a black, I know when a black person, I know how to read that. I didn't know how to read this other stuff. And I'm still, it still always confuses me. I don't know how to read this. And that's what I feel like. I'm getting my degree in studying white people. Um, (laughs) And trying to understand the culture and what it is and what it's saying and what it and and uh, and I'm curious, so it's often uncomfortable. Uh, what I tell my students, you know, is that my curiosity is bigger than my discomfort.
0: Um, so let's—I want to just fill in a couple of blanks here. So your childhood is in Kansas City. You're there until
1: uh, I go to graduate school in 1975 in Florida.
0: Where did you go to undergrad?
1: University of Missouri-Kansas City.
0: Okay. Um, and are you studying dance? Dance, yes. And then you do MFA Dur- yep. in Tallahassee. And then is it the opportunity to work with Diane McIntyre that brings you to New York?
1: Yeah. I saw Diane's company at Florida A&M, which Florida State is divided by the railroad tracks. The black university is on one side. Um, the predominantly or historically white university is on the other side. Um so I would often go across the tracks to Florida A&M because I needed to find, you know, I need to find, you know. When I came to Florida State, it only recently integrated. So it integrated in 1962. I got there in 1975. So it was, it was still very, very challenging. Mm-hmm. So going across the tracks to the black community, to Florida A&M was a way of survival, was a way of finding community um, of... Saving my soul, <laughs> um, so so I was, yeah, I was yeah, Florida, I, Florida State. I got my MFA. I was there, you know. Then I came to New York, nineteen eighty. Um,
0: and Diane McIntyre.
1: Oh, I saw, oh, that's what I was. Saying. I saw Diane McIntyre's company when they were performing at Florida AM. and when I saw her company, I was just like. It's jazz, which is what I grew up with. Or, you know the music we call jazz, and it's experimental avant-garde jazz, which I was drawn to, and it's experimental choreography, and it's and it's black women and and black men, and it's it's it was like the black arts movement come alive for me, mm. in this um, poetic, exciting uh, force that was Sounds in Motion, that was Diane McIntyre.
0: I love the way that you come alive when you talk about that because we, we don't always get to know those moments that change our lives.
1: Oh, yeah, that was one. I went up to her and after the concert and I said, <laughs> I said, I want to be in your company. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, <laughs> maybe you should come to New York and study <laughs> with mm-hmm. me. Um, but I was very clear, I need to be inside of that. That is real. That's authentic. That's, You know, one of those moments when you know something, you see something, it's like, that is real. That's real. That's speaking to me. It had poetry. There were singers on stage. It was live. That was speaking to me.
0: So then you actually come to New York and you realize that dream. What was it like when you first began
1: studying with her? It was, it was, it was, you know, like heaven. <laughs> um and all of these musicians and poets and people that i was reading about would come through her studio and so indazaki would come through and i'm like why did i like mispronouncing her name totally is that indazaka shanga <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know cecil taylor and these and i'm like i'm just wide-eyed because I'm I've read about these people I'm listening to their music listen to their words I'd seen for colored girls and so for me it was just it was artists who um one of the women I really bonded with Cheryl who also had a love of visual arts and so became art buddies we would go to the museums and go to exhibits and um you know everything from the black artist to um, exhibits at, at at MoMA and the modernist artist and then some of the contemporary and the challenging things and so that for me is that it it was it was a place where artists gathered and had conversations and hung out at Linux Lounge, <laughs> uh, which unfortunately <laughs> is gone. Um yeah, I remember
0: when that shuttered. That was hard.
1: Yeah, it was, you know, hanging out at after dance class, you know, you go and hang out and the conversations were philosophical and fun and gossipy and political, all of that. Um, so that was for me that, you know, that's where I feel like I got my Ph.D. was moving to New York.
0: Well, now earlier you said you got a degree in studying white people. So what was this Ph.D. in?
1: In art, <laughs> in art and culture, art and culture and the breadth and depth of it. From going to the New Yorkans Poets Cafe to, uh, you know, growing up in Kansas City, again, because it's segregated, the Mexicans uh, lived, you know, in a particular part, and there was very little contact, and the Jewish people were you know, definitely wouldn't have had any contact with them. And so being in this, and in Tallahassee, Tallahassees are definitely Southern black and white, that's all that existed, um, whatever you were, you were black or you were white. Um, so coming to New York and seeing all of these different cultures and and salsa in the streets, and, you know, for me, it was just, that's what I felt like I was just studying what was possible in terms of the creative force that one could generate and learn about. Hmm.
0: What has it meant to you to make home here? Well,
1: it's one of my homes, hmm. yeah one of my homes Mm -hmm. it it it's excitement it's um inspiration and what i learned is that i i need to get out so for me florida is reflection reconnection nature slower pace contemplation my pedagogy um you know from teaching at florida state my relationship with colleagues um. So both things are important. They 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 both feed me, and I. I keep. <laughs> at some point, I know that it will probably become. Uh, yeah, they both feed me. Uh, I need to be in looking out in my backyard in Florida, and seeing green and seeing the birds, and. Um, Hearing the birds in the morning, and I'm not hearing garbage trucks um <laughs> uh you know i'm i'm yeah I, i'm I take deep breaths when i'm there hmm.
0: so let's talk um about what your work is about urban bush women i um I read that it formed for you when you realized you were becoming depressed doing other people's work that you mm-hmm. needed to to root yourself in your own vision?
1: Yeah. Um, I think I saw Diane McIntyre struggling so much. I didn't have any models that I didn't have trust fund. A lot of the artists that I was seeing, they were white, had trust funds. Uh, as ways of beginning their work and getting established or access to to wealth, I didn't have any of that, so I didn't see how it could be possible so there, though there, there was one little voice of saying, "You should do this, you should do that." There was another voice that was saying, "Are you kidding? You can never do this. you don't have you don't have the resources, you don't have the connections you know so th- that inner battle. Um, and so when one part of you is saying, when your heart is saying you need to do something but then your mind, it's giving you all the reasons that you can't do it. It does create, um, a weight, a depression, a, 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 um, inertia until you break through and figure it out. And, you know, there were so many moments, but one of the moments, Morgan Freeman, you will never remember me, but I thank you. Because I went to a talk that he gave. He was in the play Gospel at Colonus. And there was a talk. I think it was free. Free talk talk with Morgan Freeman. um, Talking about an actor and his process. But he wasn't a big name then. And so I went. And he was, because I had seen Gospel at Colonus. And he was talking about that there was a point where he was temping in his life, you know, working, you know, at temp jobs. And then he made a decision. I am going to make my life by acting or it's just going to take me out. And, that, and he made that decision. And that, for me, was a moment. Okay, I got to do this. I got to... I'm doing this and this and this and this and teach it over here. No, I'm going to do this. I might be hungry a lot, and I was. I might not have, you know, no money to take the train. I might have to hop the turnstiles, and I did. Um, but I made, you know, it was part of a decision-making. I am going to do this. And I'm not going to think of falling back on anything else but the art. So Morgan Freeman, and, and I, and, and what was beautiful is that afterwards, after his talk, cause I, I was just interested in him as an artist. So I, we walked to the subway together and I'm just hungry for more information. And he has no idea how much that helped me make this a decision about where I needed to go. So I thank you, Morgan Freeman. <laughs>
0: That's an amazing story. Um, Yeah, and I feel like it requires a very particular kind of commitment and discipline and maybe rigor to create a life as a creative.
1: A little bit of insanity. (laughs) Yeah, because everybody else is saying, like, are you crazy? It's like, yeah, I am. And it's all right because, oh, a a friend of mine, Jessica Hagedorn, one of her lines in her poem, in a poem she'd written, was, let's stay crazy under pressure. Hmm. (laughs) And uh, I remembered that and I was like, yeah, mm -hmm.
0: that's it. When you look back at the, I guess now 35 years of of urban Bushwomen, what are you proudest of?
1: The first image that came to me was a river, and it's a river of women. It's a river of women, women plus women, men, people who often would come to me and say, this is the first time I saw myself on stage. So that something about that river and whether we had a lot of contact with people in terms of our leadership work and um or just moments that something was real and it touches people it touches people in a real way in a visceral way um it's our joke it was a you know joke with one of our um, <laughs> a friend of mine he said every time I say you know that I'm working with you or you know, he said, people tear up and they talk about their experience. Wow. That's, that's pretty powerful. So I'm very proud of that.
0: Tell me about the night um, when all of this work that you've been doing and dedicating yourself to was recognized with the Lifetime Achievement Award at the Best. Oh my
1: goodness, at the Bessies. That was amazing. But it was, because it wasn't just me. It was that whole night. It was like, <laughs> when, when the skeleton architecture, when they got the Bessie and they came up in their full power and went down on one knee, I'm like, oh, okay, this is real. And it was like, it was just an accumulation. So for me, by the time I came out there on that stage, it was like, it's got to be real. This has got to be real. I'm, I wanted to call. I wanted to. I'm. I'm so grateful that I was being seen, and mm. I wanted to call out to my community, my my mostly white, but not exclusive, but mostly white, arts community that I was part of the generation that of coming up with. i gonna say you. We're a community. You don't always include me. I'm including y'all right now. I'm naming you. I'm. I'm including you all. But I need for you to understand that we're part of an arts community that came up together. That um, from 1980-ish, to we we were forming companies, we were doing work, and there was something about that that needs to be acknowledged. Um, so yeah, for me it was it was amazing. My family was there, and then at the same time it was a like, lifetime achievement. But I got more. I got more. <laughs> <laughs> this is supposed to be when I'm ninety. <laughs> Um, I got more, you know, I'm not done I'm not done at all so it was it was exhilarating and then to be able to, because they asked me they said well, we want to show a section of your work and we were trying to figure out a five minute section of my work, nothing makes sense in five minutes and I thought, well why don't I do a solo um, yeah, so I got my butt back on stage and that was <laughs> and it made me realize, ooh, I I am a performer mm-hmm. this I've been performing since I was seven, eight years old, and this is this is in me.
0: What was it about that moment that called that forward?
1: The thing I love about performing is like the before it's like your your energy and nerves are all over the place, and I feel like I'm a mess and I'm going to throw up and uh, I'm going to pass out and then there's a moment when it' step out on stage and it goes. Like you drop down into yourself, with the greatest heightened intensity, of focus and clarity, and it's it's where I it's where I know. It's where it's when I'm not out in anybody else's space, but it's it's just that's the only way I can describe it. It's like people, your chi, your ashe, you drop down into that if it's right there and that is the focus and that is the task at hand and that is the place that's beautiful
0: what does it um what does it mean to be an artist
1: i i think being an artist is it's a, it's a courageous place because it's not certainly particularly in dance there's um as a theater artist, you could possibly become wealthy. Not always, but you could possibly become wealthy. As a visual artist, you could possibly become wealthy. Not always. It, 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 you can't own dance at this point. Somebody will figure it out how to. You can't collect, you can't be a collector. So there's something in the purity of, of dance that I really love. And I think to be an artist is like it's 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 a it's a way of life. I live my life as a creative being. So when I when people I say, well, my job is to be inspired. I my job is to be inspired. So that I means that's why I have to go to museums. That's why sometimes I have to take naps. That's why sometimes I have to sit out in the park. I'm working. That's my work. And so people who are not in an artistic life. It looks like all play, and we have to play. As an artist, you have to play. Um, i That's my job, is to be inspired. Uh, and to have the tools and the techniques when inspiration is not coming quick, then I have to have the tools and the technique to call upon to then ignite the inspiration.
0: When you look forward over the next... Several decades, what do you envision for yourself? In
1: I'm starting to, um, I've been asked to do some big projects, which I c- can't speak about yet publicly, but I'm really excited in this next chapter of directing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, yeah, A- and and to be able to imagine. Uh, on a on a larger design scale than I've ever had to do. I'm very excited.
0: Okay, teasers. I'm excited. <laughs> is there um is there anything we should talk about that we haven't yet?
1: Um. Well, gratitude to you. Thank you very much for um, being flexible <laughs> with my <laughs> schedule, and um and just wanting to do this. I'm. There's so many people that are part of the pathway that um, I stand on the shoulders of, hold hands with. Um, oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I'm
0: grateful that you're here. I'm grateful for you, period. Um, thanks, neighbor. Thanks, neighbor. <laughs> thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and read and review us on iTunes. It helps others discover this show. You can also follow us on the socials at Lineage Podcast and visit LineagePodcast.com for information about live events, to see portraits I've made of our guests, and to become a patron of this broadcast. For more from me, head on over to ShaniJamila.com. The inaugural season of Lineage is brought to you by the generosity of our campaign supporters, with special thanks to our founder circle. Amiga Carter, Ayana Dixon, Vera Grant, Lawanda Hodges, Ayana Minor, Wendell and Helen O'Neill, Ramani Rogers, Jimmy and Lee Sutton, Chantal Vera, Stacey Burton White, and our associate producers, the BK Fam. Graphic design by Tony Moore Images, original music composed by Cody Got Beats. <laughs>